tonight we're going to be in John chapter 3, and I'm going to try and take it easy. Austin so it gave me some advice, and he said, hey, look, they're like right there, so you don't need to yell at them. So I was like, do I yell when I speak? I don't know. Do I? I don't think so. Do I? No, I'm not supposed to. Yeah, what? Anyway, we're going to be in John chapter 3 tonight, and uh, we're going to start in actually verse 1, and we're going to end in, yeah, we'll see where we end. So we'll start in verse 1. John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. It says he was a ruler of the Jews. The man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Um, come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I love how John uh, does not fail to mention that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Pharisees, uh, uh, or uh, a man of the Pharisees and a ruler of the Jews. He was actually one of the separated ones. Like, he was an elite, what you would call theologian of these days. He was what we would call today a heavy hitter. I don't know who you know as heavy hitters. I think about maybe Charles Spurgeon or D.L. Moody or Pastor Steve Rex and I don't know. He likes John MacArthur. So John MacArthur, he's pretty good. Um, For women, I don't know who you listen to. Who do you listen to? Maybe Priscilla Shire? Uh, (laughs) My wife listens to Priscilla Shire. Uh, Katie Robertson? I have no idea. Anyway, he's one of those heavy hitters that you would kind of listen to these days, right? And um, and he was uh, well-known among the people. He could walk down the street with his robe and his uh, prayer shawl, and, and people would step aside and um, would recognize without a doubt who this person is, right? That he was a Pharisee and recognized wholly among the people because Nick's position, to sum up his background, his entire life was dedicated to studying and living out every single jot and tittle of the law like crossing those T's and dotting those I's. Nick was also a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was an exclusive group that controlled the entire religious life of Israel. Like this is a man with status. He's no ordinary dude. He was an elite, a ruler of the Pharisees. And there are kind of many speculations why he met with Jesus, uh, maybe for investigation purposes. There's a lot of talk going around town now that Jesus hit the scene because ministry is now booming, right? Like Jesus, this is new, the Jesus movement is happening and ministry is going off and Jesus was the talk of the town. Like he was the talk of the town, becoming very popular among the people, but not so popular among the religious system, among Nicodemus' peers and so here we are now. Somewhere in the evening where the setting is quiet, where their conversation is undisturbed and personal, away from the Pharisees, away from the crowd. And if you guys watch The Chosen, anybody watch The Chosen? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Their disciples eavesdropping on the other side of the wall, right? You remember that? Whatever, you guys be doing the same thing if you were there. And so as we read in verse 1, we have this prominent religious teacher of Israel approaching and addressing Jesus now as the rabbi, coming in a sense of humility, Jesus being the teacher, and now Nick becoming the student, I believe more than anything, Nicodemus wanted something that Jesus had. And he didn't know what it was yet. You see, Jesus would spend a lot of his time teaching. But apart from his teaching, there were also a lot of signs and miracles taking place in his ministry. 
And these Pharisees would oftentimes try to discredit Jesus for them, right? With their theology, trying to explain the unexplainable. But the point is that they were undeniable. It happened. And whether we can explain them or not, they know and we know Jesus is the person behind them. Amen? But on this night, Jesus wasn't here to talk about miracles, right? Miracles don't save you. Nor was Jesus trying to teach Nicodemus anything that he could have added to his walk with God, adding to his daily list of things that he needed to check off. Jesus jets straight to the point. What does he say in verse 3? You cannot see the kingdom of God unless one is born again. You see, it wasn't another list of laws or regulations that Nick needed to complete. These Pharisees worked hard in keeping their traditions and rules and regulations and laws passed down from their fathers' fathers, and that has become the measure of their faith. This, that it's these external actions, uh, these external actions, these practices that somehow justify you and I. I'm going to explain a little, more, a little bit more. Uh-oh. That we are righteous in a sense because we follow some kind of moral code. This is what we would call moralism. And it has nothing to do with becoming born again. And at this time and even today, this is what's being yoked upon the people of Israel. That you are justified by your works. And so Jesus explaining this to a man who studies the scriptures and keeps the law and teaches the word that there is nothing I'm trying to add to your walk but something that needs to take place. Like we need to start over. That even a man like you with your credentials and your accomplishments and your religious background, these things do not get you into the kingdom. These are good things and they are good practices but they don't give you access. Jesus said, you must be born again. And I think sometimes it's easier for me to just get a list of things that I need to do in order to be saved. It's logical, it's practical, and it's tangible, but it's not the gospel. Charles Spurgeon would say that there's a legalist in all of us. Like we are made into Pharisees. That somehow, by our actions, we think we can somehow work our way into his kingdom. And if you think that there's anything that we can do to earn God's love, and we think we can earn salvation, then you and I miss the message of the gospel completely. This is a legalistic view of Christianity. And if these are the pair of shades you have on, it's hard to see and experience the grace of God on your life. And this is what we would call self-righteousness. And if we don't recognize this quickly, this life will be an endless, uh, endless striving unto some type of moral perfection. And trust me, you'll never get there. Why? Romans 8, Paul says it. We are sinful by nature. This is what God's law shows us. And what's happening is apart from Jesus Christ, we look to ourselves as the solution. That's this entire world. That's the world we grow up in. What can we do to fix these issues of life, right? Like, what must I do to be saved? What can I do to fix these problems? And the reality is, I am the problem. Romans 3.12 says, there is none who does good. No, not one. Like, you and I, I'm sorry, we are guilty of breaking God's law at almost every point in our lives. Real quick, I love this. I took this class with Elena. 
And it's, it kind of goes like this. Like, do we have to teach anyone how to lie? Has anybody here lied before? That you all lied. Don't even play. Has anybody here lied before? Right? Amen. That's easy, right? Or what about this one? I think Pastor Steve talked about it. Simply wanting someone, something that someone else has. It's called coveting. You know what it starts to sound like? Why is this person being blessed and I'm not? And quickly that becomes an accusation against God and I'm super guilty of that. Like this is what lives and breathes inside of you and I. And these are just two things. I cannot even imagine the rest because I know me. God's law is perfect and God's law is good but it was given to show us that we are in desperate need of a Savior. And so the question is, how can the problem fix the problem, right? Like, how can I save myself? How can I save others when I'm the one who needs saving? Right now, Jesus is not here to show Nicodemus how how to continue living this life. Jesus is here to show Nicodemus how to find it first. And so we hear his response, right? Verse 4. He says, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he uh, enter a second time into his mother's mother's womb and be born? And so Jesus explains this a little more. Uh, Verse 5 and 6, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so you, one picture you get here is how a baby is in the mother's room. I got to see a lot of that over the past couple weeks. Um, and they are, uh, I got to learn and study a little bit about that. They are actually floating in this thing called amniotic fluid. Like for nine months. Taylor knows. And until recently, I had no clue how this thing worked. Like, I had no idea. So I got to see and study what happens during pregnancies. But this fluid is essential to the baby's growth, into developing the baby and protecting it, right? Can we agree? All right. And what happens is that when time is up, this sac, which is full of water, the full of this fluid, will eventually break, and the baby then makes its way out, right? And so in this parallel, Jesus, in a sense, is saying that this phenomenon that happens in the mother's womb could be related to how the Spirit of God works for us. A person who is born once has physical life, but a person born twice, born again, receives eternal life. And so this is a spiritual birth that takes place in the life of you and I. And as we just talked about this earlier, the baby doesn't do anything in order for it to be born. It's the mother. What a perfect illustration to give someone like Nicodemus that it's not by what you do, but it's by the Spirit of God. Water and Spirit could also mean the same thing as Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, he said, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he was talking about the Holy Spirit. Another interpretation of this, of water can metaphorically mean the Word of God. That even Paul says in our marriages, husbands, you might sanctify your wives and cleanse your wives with the washing of water by the word. And so I believe the word of God and the spirit of God can be the same thing. 
but I also believe that the Word of God and the Spirit of God work together. Wearsby says this, just as there are two parents for our physical birth, there are two parents for our spiritual birth. It's kind of cheesy, but it makes sense. Uh, the Spirit of God and the Word of God. He would say it is the Spirit of God that uses the Word of God, and when a sinner believes, imparts the life of God. And so more than anything, Jesus oftentimes uses these earthly examples to help us understand heavenly principles, right? And so he uses another analogy for us in verse 7 and 8. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. I believe at this time of the night where it's quiet and just undisturbed silence, there must have been a slight breeze, right, that kind of passed through. And as Jesus says, we can't physically see where the wind comes from or where it goes, we know that it's there. We hear its sound. We can hear, we can see the results from trees moving and choppy conditions or good conditions, surfing conditions, uh, choppy conditions, like it's junk when, it's, when the winds are blowing onshore and you can't go diving, and so that's for me. But um, from trees moving and leaves rustling, this is an anal- analogy for us as believers. That once you are born again and the Spirit of God lives within you, it will be evident in your life today. Like, this is something you and I cannot hide. Genesis 1 says that everything reproduces after its kind then this is, what, this is why Jesus says that which is born of the Spirit is spirit and that which is born of the flesh is flesh and something that takes place inwardly will eventually start to show itself outwardly. And so Nicodemus says in verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so right here, Jesus gives this example um, in the book of Numbers where the children of Israel got tired of walking and started murmuring and complaining that God isn't good. And Moses, you suck as a leader. I don't know if they said that, but a story that Nicodemus should be very, very familiar with. And so therefore, God sends snakes into that camp, and if they got bitten, you would die. Eventually, you would die. And so now, this is happening, and now they have a change of heart. They repented, it says, and confessed that they have sinned. And so they ask Moses, please pray that God takes away these snakes. God didn't take away the serpents. Instead, he told Moses, make a serpent out of bronze for everybody to see. That whoever looked at this serpent on the pole would live. And whoever didn't, they would die. In the camp of Israel, the solution to the serpent problem wasn't killing the serpents or making serpent medicine or passing anti-serpent laws. 
No, they were saved by an act of faith. By lifting their eyes off of the problem and onto the solution. Jesus said, just as this serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have what? Eternal life. This is the result of an unbelieving, rebellious generation. These snakes were a representation of sin. For the wages of sin is what? Death. I remember I said earlier, like, this is what lives and breathes inside of you and I. I'm sorry to say, but there is nothing good in us. We failed the commandment test. And the sooner we realize this truth, the sooner we recognize our inability to save ourselves. The message of the gospel becomes a message of God's love, of God's grace, and redemption. And not just a crutch. It has never been us working towards God, but God always working towards us. Jesus was sent here to pay a price on our behalf. That's the message. And to believe in him means all my trust and all my hope is in the truth that Christ came, died for my sins, and rose again. And punched death in its face. Like, that's the gospel. And to believe in him means now we are following in his footsteps. What happens is that the Spirit of God moves in. And everything starts to change from the inside out. God says in Ezekiel, I will put a new spirit with you. I'll give you a new heart. Listen, you cannot give up on a Jesus you've never tried. Serious. You cannot give up on a Jesus that you've never tried. And so for those of us who are saved, tonight I want to pray for you as well. Maybe you've been just going through the motions of this thing called Christianity. And for Nicodemus, I believe he realized he was missing the most important thing in his life. Apart from the services and the religious activities, these Pharisees had what you would call empty religion. That's all it was. Just going through the motions, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. That's what this is. And sometimes we can be so caught up in the busyness of life and ministry and we are neglecting the most important part of it all. It's those quiet and undisturbed moments where it's just you and Jesus having a conversation with each other again. And if that's you tonight, I encourage you to come back to that. Like whether it's in the mornings or in the middle of the day or Nick at night. That's what they call this, yeah? Nick at night. I always say mornings. I always meet the Lord in the mornings, but that becomes legalistic too. So whenever you have that time to spend with the Lord, it can be any time during the day. It says in Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity into our hearts. You know that cliche, you have a God-shaped hole in your heart? Anybody heard that before? Like you have a God-shaped hole in your heart? And in my experience, it cannot be filled with people, places, and things. 
This void could only be filled by the one who created it. And so as we close in prayer, I pray tonight for uh, those of you who haven't put their trust in Jesus Christ, and maybe you did, it begins by recognizing who we are in the light of who he is. And I believe that's what it was speaking to me this week. You know what Jesus said? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what it means to be poor in spirit? Lord, I cannot do this. Like, Lord, I recognize I'm spiritually bankrupt without you. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And so as we close in prayer, I just want to pray. And so God, I ask that you would just forgive me. And if that's you tonight, maybe you can pray in your heart. And I, that you would save me from my sin, Lord. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty of our sins. God, I pray that you would put your spirit within us, that you would give me a new heart, that you would give me new desires, Lord God, so that I could follow after you. And for the rest of us, I pray that tonight we would be moved and encouraged to come back to the Lord. Like, forgive me, Lord, for saying that I love you and I don't spend that time to get to know you. And Lord, you are so available. It's us that go away and stray off, God, but you are still there, like in the message of the prodigal son. Your arms are always wide open, Lord. So God, I pray that you would bring us back if that's us. Sorry for being distracted with all the busyness of life and these other things that I never make that time to spend with you. And you are a God of love and grace and a God of mercy. And so I pray for each and every person here tonight, Lord God, that um, from even tonight, Lord, that you would put a desire a supernatural desire on their heart to um, draw closer to you, Lord, and to have a personal and intimate relationship.